So you have your Bible, find the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. Ooh, going to a new place tonight. Tonight we are in, we're going to consider the next to last covenant of our series. 2 Samuel chapter 7. These covenants lay out for us sort of the story of our salvation. The salvation that was first promised in Genesis 3.15, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so the covenants that we have studied so far um, were foreshadows and promises of that, that coming salvation in Jesus. These, these covenants, especially when you see them in succession and think about them, they, they sort of painted, in a way, painted a picture of what that salvation would look like when Jesus came. Obviously, it's easier to see once he has come, but, the, but it was there. It's like a room that's thoroughly furnished but dimly lit. That's the Old Testament. Just to review a bit, we started with the covenant that God made with Adam uh, in the garden, covenant of works, um, covenant of creation, goes by different names, where Adam, the first man, was the, the representative of every human being that would ever come after him. If you, we're studying the covenants, and if you want to know the technical covenant theology term for him as a representative, it's, it's, he was the federal head, federal, like, like the federal justice system. Federal comes from the Latin word foetus, which means covenant. That's just a different word. So Adam was our federal head, our covenant head, a representative of everybody that would ever come after him. And God made a covenant with Adam and expected him to walk in happy obedience. Um, if you were able to be here last Sunday night, I encourage you to come on Sunday nights. It's a sweet time. If you were able to be here last Sunday night, Pastor Brian, he described this covenant in his sermon, and, and, and he really gave... Uh, emphasis to every advantage that, that the Lord had given Adam to, su to succeed and to be obedient in this, this covenant. Whatever Adam did, he did as our representative, he, what it, which meant his obedience or his disobedience would affect not only him, but everybody uh, after him. If he, if he obeyed, he would be blessed and enjoy uh, eternal, unbroken fellowship with God, along with you know everyone after him, as so long as they obeyed. But if he disobeyed, everyone would be cursed, along with everyone after him. And and that's we all know how that ended. So God had only given Adam one prohibition: not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam failed to obey that, and um, and he also failed to lead his wife Eve to be obedient in that. Um, but because he disobeyed, the whole world was plunged into sin and its curse, its effects. And so from that moment on, everyone comes into the world, fellowship with God already broken, and sin has turned us away. Not just, not just um, sort of separated us from him, but has also turned us away from him. Sin, in other words, sin not only brings us guilt, it corrupts us. Um, it corrupts us and and and. In, as part of that corruption, it also, sin is a power in us that deceives us. It deceives us we, we, in the sense that we are separated from Him, but we, we're deceived by our own sin to convince ourselves that there are more important things than that. That, 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 that you know, we don't need God, we're right in our own eyes. 
God knew, though, that if, if we didn't, if we, that we, he knew that we would never seek him. And if, if, if he didn't seek us, we would never seek him. The Bible says that. Romans 3.11, quoting Psalm 14.2, says, no one seeks for God, period. Um, and that's why in Genesis 3, even as God pronounced judgment on Adam and everyone in, in Adam, he promised salvation in Genesis 3.15. Um, and all the subsequent covenants that come after that uh, confirm and expand on that first promise in Genesis 3.15. So then God made a covenant with Noah. Uh, we, we, uh, we summarize that as time and opportunity. Uh, the, the covenant with Noah was at, just after he had brought a just judgment against sin through a flood, he, God reaffirmed his promise to Noah that a Savior would come and that specifically to Noah, he promised that he would keep time going so that that Savior could come and that people would have an opportunity to know that Savior, respond to him. Then God made a covenant with Abraham, which he reaffirmed that first promise. And in, in, in the covenant with Abraham, he, he, prom, he, he emphasized that, that, uh, that salvation would be by his free grace alone, um, in that God took on, on himself all the obligations of, of that covenant. Um, last week we looked at the covenant with Moses in which God gave his perfect law to the people of Israel to live by. Uh, God had graciously brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He gave them a law to live by. And God, knowing that they, would, they were sinful people, they were corrupted in the sin of Adam, that they would, never believe, they would never be obedient to that, he, God, built into that law a system of sacrifices for their sins. God knew that those sacrifices never would take away sins, um, but they were commanded and put there to be a picture of a greater sacrifice that was coming that really could take away sins. Interestingly, Romans 3, verses 24 to 26, says about all of the sins that were committed in the Old Testament, Romans 3, 24 says that God passed over those former sins. He passed over former sins um, because he knew uh, they never, uh, because he knew that there was a, a better sacrifice coming in Jesus Christ, who himself would be the propitiation for our sins and everyone who believed. So unlike the sacrifices that were in that system under Moses, that they had to be offered again and again and again and again. If you read the book of Hebrews, it makes a big deal out of that. Why did they have to be offered again and again and again and again? Because they never did take away sins. Um, they all pointed forward to the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. So that's the story of the covenants that gets us up to tonight. We've, with Adam, we saw our need of salvation. With Noah, time would go, keep going until he came. Abraham, the salvation would be by God's free grace. Um, he alone could provide it. And in Moses, we're reminded of our inability to keep the law. And God uh, would send a sacrifice for our sins. Tonight we come to the next covenant. And that is the covenant with David. The covenant with David, and it's with this covenant, perhaps, more than any other, save maybe, save maybe the covenant with um, Moses, that the, the idea becomes clearest that this Savior who would come for so long would be God himself. God himself would come, the king himself would come to do battle against all that is opposed to him, do everything that was necessary for his people to be saved. So we're going to look at a passage here in 2 Samuel 7 that shows us that this covenant this covenant that God promised 
that God would come. It foreshadowed how it would be that he would not only rule and reign, but he would be a savior to sinners who look to him to be saved. So 2 Samuel 7, we're going to read verses 1 through 17. All right. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is, the Lord is with you. And notice right there, um, whenever you see Lord in your Bible in small caps, that means that it is the covenant name of God in Hebrew that is behind it, Yahweh. When you see Lord, it's not in small caps, it's, it's Adonai, just Lord. So he's using his covenant name here. The, Yahweh is with you. But that same night, verse 4, that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house, would you build me a house to dwell in it? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and, I will, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men but with the, and with, with the stripes of the, of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy and inspired, infallible, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And I pray again that you would give us eyes to see your truth here. Please give us minds to understand it. Give us hearts to embrace it. Lord, we don't... We don't Study these things just to know the Bible better, but to know you better. And to know the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ better. Give us hearts to embrace it. Love it. And uh, love you. Lord, give us all ears to hear. Give us wills to obey. 
please give me help that I need to teach. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you're taking notes, I want us to see three things that this passage teaches us about the king that is promised to come to be our Savior, who I, not surprisingly, I, I take to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So I want us to see three things. One, the king, our rest. The king, our rest, R-E-S-T. Secondly, the king, our representative. The king, our representative. And thirdly, the king, our ruler. The king, our rest, the king, our representative, and the king, our ruler. All three of those things are foreshadowed in this passage, fulfilled in Jesus. You see the promise that God is making there to David. The central verse here is verse 12, that he would, he would raise up an offspring, come and establish his kingdom. That kingdom is said over and over again to be a forever kingdom. Um, but the first thing that jumps off the page that's in this covenant is that this king would bring rest from all enemies. So, again, the main promise there is in verse 12. And then, you know, God, God makes that promise. He's going to raise up an offspring. He would bless and establish David's dynasty as king. And one particular descendant would reign forever. And throughout, throughout this passage, there are descriptions about what God would establish what God would accomplish through this coming king. And the first thing mentioned that God promises is that this king would bring rest from enemies. Uh, the, the, the first mention of rest, sort of, is in, verse, is in verse 1 of the passage, where it says the king, that's David, the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Now, that's, that's actually describing what the Lord had done for David himself, the Lord had blessed David and his, and, his, and his kingship, and David had fought many battles, and God had um, given him victory over all their enemies under, under King David. But as you keep reading, you begin to see that the rest that God gave David as king was just a foreshadow um, that would come in an even greater way through a greater king, promised in verses 10 and 11. Look there, and we'll read through almost the end of verse Verse 11, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no, no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. We'll stop right there. So God promises a day. He had already given David some kind of rest from their surrounding enemies, but he promises another day coming when he will give rest from all enemies. Um, he would gather his people and give them victory. Now, when you read this, and if you're familiar with your Old Testament, it, it leads you to a couple of conclusions. One, on one level, it appears to be a promise just for the people of Israel. And on one level, it, it certainly is. Uh, just, just listen, but you can jot this reference down if you're taking notes. But in 1 Kings chapter 4, in 1 Kings chapter 4, toward the end of that chapter, this is what we read about David's son Solomon. Okay, who was a king uh, in Israel. He was, the kingdom had reached its height under Solomon, actually. And this is what we read in 1 Kings 4. Under, under Solomon's rule, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety. That's rest. 
So yes, on, on one level, the promise in 2 Samuel 7 of a coming rest for David's offspring who ruled had to do with the Old Testament nation of Israel. There's no question about that. But, but if you know the rest of the history of Israel in the Old Testament, and certainly if you go to the New Testament uh, and, and let the New Testament help you understand the Old, you come to realize that the, the Old Testament nation of Israel was not the end goal. That it was an earthly kingdom that was a type of a greater kingdom being built. Israel was a physical and earthly kingdom that was a type of a, of a greater spiritual and heavenly eternal kingdom. And that's why, that's why when you go to the New Testament, you, you read Paul making some interesting comments. That's why you have Paul saying, for example, to the Romans in Romans 9, 6, he says literally, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So he's talking about a different Israel of sorts. What Israel are you talking about? If it's not those who are descended from Israel, if, they don't, if it's not just the, the people who are born into that nation, somehow they're not part of the Israel I'm talking about. And that's why in Galatians 6.16, Paul talks about all believers, all believers in the church. He calls the church the Israel of God. The Israel of God. So when here in 2 Samuel 7, God promises to give rest to His people Israel, I believe the New Testament leads us to understand that ultimately this promise of rest is going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, certainly we saw God, I just, we just read it, we saw God gave rest to, to Solomon, which is David's son, but after Solomon's reign, the kingdom split. They split into two kingdoms, and all you find from that point on for the Old Testament nation of Israel is their enemies gaining constant victory over them and conquering them, scattering them to exile. First it was the Assyrians, then it was the Babylonians, then it was the Medes and Persians who allowed them to go home, but then it was the Greeks, and then it was the Romans. There's no rest. There's no rest at all. And so you might think the promise has failed. But Jesus Christ comes, who in Matthew 1, 1, the first page of your New Testament, refers to him as the son of David, Matthew 1, 1. And, 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 and you realize that Jesus is that king, and it's confirmed when that son of David, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, comes. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so God promised to David that, that one day a king would come from his line who would give his people rest from all their enemies. Jesus is that king. And Paul says of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, that by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, Jesus will reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. So now the Bible's pretty clear. Is that who are the enemies? It's kind of easy to say, who are the enemies? Who were David's enemies? Who were Solomon's enemies? Well, it was the surrounding nations. But who are, who are in this greater spiritual kingdom, uh, the kingdom of God, who are the enemies? Uh, the New Testament tells us that there's a threefold enemy. Um, in Ephesians 2, place like Ephesians 2, it says we have three main enemies. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Jesus is presented to us in the New Testament as having conquered all of them. 
In John 6, 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. That's one enemy down. Jesus, John says in 1 John 3, 8, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's the second enemy down. And there's far more we could say about each of those, but there's, for the sake of time, I want to spend a little more time on the third enemy, which is our own selves. What about that? Our, our, our own sin and our own guilt and our own rebellion is without question our greatest enemy that, that is against him. And we, how has he given us rest from that? And I think we see it most clearly in the second truth of this covenantal passage of David. And that is that the king is not only our rest, he is our representative. The king is our representative. So if you're still in 2 Samuel 7... I want to draw your attention to an interesting twist uh, in, in God's covenant promise to David. Draw your attention to, to verses 12 to 14, and we'll, uh, we'll focus on verse 14. But look with me beginning in verse 12. And there he tells David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Now I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of men. Now you have to think carefully about what the Lord is saying there and promising there and who is in view. Because I told you that I think Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant. But if it's just that, then you run into problems when you try to explain when verse 14 says, when he commits iniquity. I will discipline him. When did Jesus ever commit iniquity? He never did. The Bible's clear on that. First Peter two twenty two. He was he um, there was no he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews four fifteen. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So again, we need to keep clear. In in one sense. Every, every kingly descendant of David is a partial fulfillment of this promise. Specifically Solomon. He's the one that built the temple that he's talking about here. Um, but there are also things here that clearly only belong to Jesus. Can only be said of Jesus. Such as the repeated promises that David's throne would be established forever. Forever. I mean, it says that uh, yeah, verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Three times the forever nature of, his, of this throne is emphasized and only the Son of God could occupy a throne forever. So it is true that this covenant with David is partially fulfilled in every descendant of David who sat on his throne, but it is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus who sits on that throne forever, the throne of the kingdom to which David's kingdom pointed. And with that in mind, let me draw your attention to verse 14. And consider that promise that when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. Jesus never committed iniquity, but every other king descended from David did. Some, most, were very ungodly men. And in keeping with that promise, God sent discipline to them. But we need to understand 
What we need to understand is in that day, the king over the people was a representative of the people. Uh, Listen to what Deuteronomy 17 says about the kings of Israel. This is an important passage. Deuteronomy 17 says this about kings over Israel. This is Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 to 20. And when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. What was the kings of Israel to do? They were to literally write in their own book a copy of the law of Moses. Why? So they can read it, study it, and do it. Obey it. Why? Samuel Renahan says it this way. The Davidic kings are not just to lead the people as an example of righteousness and law-keeping. They are to represent the people in their law-keeping. This means that if the king is righteous, the people are blessed. And if the king is wicked, the people are cursed. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. We see this played out in the Old Old Testament. If the king was a godly and righteous man, God sent blessing on the people. Think of King Josiah. If 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 the king was ungodly, God sent suffering and judgment and and consequences on the on the all the people for that. See nearly all the other kings. The main point that if there is a main point here, it is this. The main point, the principle is set forth in the Davidic covenant that God dealt with all the people based on the character and the righteousness of their king. He was their representative before God. And God blessed or he cursed all the people based on the king over them, his obedience or his disobedience. And that principle is still at work as Jesus fulfills this covenant. God deals with his people based on the character and obedience of their king. And Jesus is that king. If you are trusting in Jesus as your savior and your king, know that God is dealing with you even now, not based on how good or bad you have been, but entirely based on how good King Jesus has been in as your representative. That is a truth worth coming to grips with. It, it, it is impossible, in my estimation, to walk in the joy of the Lord apart from that. The joy of the Lord is found in knowing that, that King Jesus has already been everything that you need to be to have peace with God. Uh, to, to, to have the favor of God. And all of it is guaranteed, as we conclude here, by the last truth, and that is the king, our ruler. I don't want to miss or leave unsaid the most obvious point of the covenant with David. And that is the promise of, of that, that, that the one who is going to come after David 
you know, this, this one who would sit on a throne forever is that he is going to sit on a throne forever. He's going to sit on a throne forever. You see that over and over again. In other words, he would rule forever. He would reign forever. Jesus is that king who is ruling and reigning forever at the right hand of God. He would rule and reign as we've already seen. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, he would rule and reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. And Jesus himself said after his resurrection in Matthew 28, 19, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Which means all his enemies will most definitely be put under his feet. Everything that God plans and desires comes to pass, and it will come to pass. Every enemy will be a footstool, and all his church will be redeemed. And that means the rest that Jesus, our King, has earned as our representative is guaranteed because he himself is the one on the throne to make it so. The Bible says that one day every knee would bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and King. And those who do that now, willingly, do so to their everlasting joy and blessing. And those who do not, to their everlasting sorrow and shame. Praise God for the opportunity He gives us. And that's why as we think about the, the covenant with David, don't forget the covenants we've already seen, especially the covenant with Noah, time and opportunity. There is a king on his throne. That is a security to every believer. That is a threat to every unbeliever. But time and opportunity carry on. So it not only this king on the throne not only gives us assurance, it gives us an urgency. It gives us an urgency to bear witness to his gospel so that as many as possible might come to believe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for uh, this, this word. I know um, there, is so, there was so, so much more to be said about the, this covenant with David. Um, but the most beautiful things, that, that you, you deal with your people on the basis of their king. You dealt, with the, you dealt with the people of Israel on the basis of the righteousness or the unrighteousness of their king. And then the promise that one day there would be a king who would come in the line of David who would sit on that throne forever and you would deal with his people based on their king. What a promise of, of assurance to us that... Um, and just like we confessed earlier, even though my conscience accuses me of having broken all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, we still have assurance because we know that God grants and credits to us by faith the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and obedience of Jesus Christ. And we are in your sight as obedient as Jesus was obedient for us. What a beautiful promise. I, I, Lord, when I pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to embrace, that's exactly what I pray that you would help us to embrace. 
It is that kind of truth, that kind of gracious truth that moves us to love you. It's not law. It's that grace. And so I pray that you would... I pray that there's somebody here that has never, never given their life to Jesus Christ, never come to that point where they understand that their sin has dishonored you and that their sin has separated them from you. You would help them to understand that Jesus came to obey in our place and to restore uh, the honor that, that we have to restore, you know, to undo the shame that we have brought on, on ourselves and on, on the Lord by our disobedience. And to bridge the gap between our, our guilty selves and His holiness. I pray that they would come to trust in Jesus today. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.